Let me guess, you signed up for every free lead magnet and binged on every marketing YouTube video and thought, what am I missing? Why isn't my business exploding like that? Well, I can tell you, you're not alone. Whether you're just getting started or have an established business, entrepreneurship can be really lonely, but it doesn't have to be. Overcoming your fear of launching or building your personal brand or figuring out how to scale, it shouldn't be holding you back. It should be empowering you. On this podcast, we're going to deep dive into the mechanics of what it takes to build your brand, make your mark, and stake your claim in the digital marketing space. I'll be chatting with people from all walks of life and stages in their careers. I will be getting inspiration from real experts who will share their actual strategies and techniques to grow loyal and raving followings and sell more stuff. This is entrepreneurship from people who are already there making it happen. My name is Jeff Mendelson. Join me and welcome to the One Big Tip Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. My name is Jeff Mendelson, and this is the One Big Tip Podcast. And today, I'm really pleased to have with me on the line Maceo Jordan. Maceo is the founder of Connexia Healthcare. He is also a serial entrepreneur with over two decades of building businesses by building great products and great marketing. And he's got some really great ideas on how to grow your business and how to grow big without actually being big. So we're going to talk a lot about this today. Maceo, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. So tell me a little bit about, about your background. You, uh, in the pre-call, you were telling me that you're like a fractional CEO or, you know, like a part-time CEO for hire. So you've worked with a lot of great companies. Tell us a little bit about why you're amazing. It, well, it really starts in my childhood, as funny as that sounds. When I was really in my, we'll call it that difficult teen stage, I was a budding martial artist and you know, got involved in some Eastern philosophies. And one of the things that occurred to me was our brain is really powerful and probably more powerful than what we realize. So I thought, yeah, I wonder what would happen if I told my brain to do all the work in the background, right? Because that's what everybody was saying back then. You know, your brain, we only use 10% of our brain and all of that. And what that developed into was a, a skill it's probably best described as a synergizer. So I can take in massive amounts of information and in very short order, regurgitate finalized plans and systems and processes. Uh, so I got started as an entrepreneur as a young kid, eight, nine years old. I was selling these little bird feeders to the, the local ladies. I got hooked onto that. I realized they had bird feeders and kind of put two and two together and was making these little baby jar uh, clothespin things rolled in peanut butter and birdseed. And so I, you know, I had a, you know, a recurring revenue business at eight years old. Unfortunately, uh, I didn't have a, a VC board behind me to, you know, scale it up. And as it became more work and frankly, more profitable, I had better stuff to do. I was writing BMX and all the, the normal kid stuff. Uh, I had my first employee not too long after that. I, I picked up a paper route and I was young enough. So the Sunday uh, edition was a little bit too big for me. So my first employee, I was waking up at 4 a.m. I think I was 10 years old. So, you know, it, it go the roots of this go back far enough that I've been practicing this stuff for now, you know, 40 some odd years, which plays into, you know, really the, the concept here. You know, too often we, when we look at successful businesses, we're looking at something that's a byproduct of a lot of I call it under the bridge work. And so the, the premise here of thinking small to grow big is too often, you know, we'll look at an Apple or, you know, the presentation techniques of Steve Jobs or something like that. 
and you know try and distill like what I'm talking about 40 years of work into a single book it's basically impossible and so most of the work that I've done with entrepreneurs has been about getting them more focused on the the little things which we can we can dive into I'll, I'll let I'll let you guide that. <laughs> no, so this is really interesting. I remember seeing a commercial a couple of years ago where it was for one of those financial firms like Fidelity Investments, you know, like the mutual funds. It was commercial on TV, and basically the guy who, uh, you know, the announcer who was talking, he's the head of their mail systems, right? So he's responsible mm-hmm. for sending out each statement to their 500,000, you know, subscribers that they have to do every month. And the way he described it, it really stuck with me because what he said was, he's like, look, I just need to make sure that I print out your statement and put it into your envelope and that it gets to your house on time. Right. And then he pauses and he's like, yep. And then I just have to do it 500,000 more times. Right. You know, which is basically what it is. Right. You know, it's like, you, you know, with all of these companies, you know, when you break it down, you know, like uh, when Apple was building the first computer or, you know, when Uber, you, you know, at first they had to start with one car. Right. You can't just go and I mean, obviously right. you need to scale that. Right. But you need a solid process so that you can make sure that uh, everything is running smoothly, both for the individual experience which is, you know, what you and I use, you know, uh, last night I just came back from, from Chicago. So I just whipped open Uber five minutes later, a car showed up and I got home on time or we, you know, do it at a massive scale, which is, you know, everybody around the world in different languages with different laws, with different, you know, everything that's going on. Let's talk about your one big tip. The key to growing big is thinking small. How does that play out, man? All right. This this goes back to you got to read. I mean, you have to read history. You have to know where stuff comes from. And early in my career, I got hooked on direct response marketing. You know, of course, they call it uh, you know DTC now, but it's all direct response, right? You're you're writing an ad with a specific objective in mind, whether it's getting somebody to give you their email or or give you money. And what most people today that are in e-commerce, I would almost say everybody in e-commerce doesn't understand. Is that all of these things that they're you know supposedly discovering? They've already been discovered. So thinking small is really about understanding the person that's buying your product. And so what I'll I'll try and make this as actionable as possible. I was reading an article. I think it was in the New York Times. It was a restaurant tour talking about how he was just getting crushed by the COVID shutdown, and he was relating some of his his business metrics. He said, "Look, if all we had." was two to $400 a night, I could have kept all of my restaurants open. And so that's what I'm talking about when I say think small in, in one facet of it. So let's say you have a business, you're wanting to grow, you want to be 10 bazillion dollars, you want to be the next Jeff Bezos. That's great. But remember, Jeff isn't Jeff overnight. Jeff is Jeff after 30 years, you know what I'm saying? He got started in, in the 90s. Not to mention that they weren't po- that they weren't even profitable for they, the first uh, you know, two thirds of that. Yes, thank you. I mean, I could I could go on for an hour about that. Yes, so Amazon did not make any money. Now it wasn't like they they weren't an ongoing business. So there's some nuance to that. All right, so you let's say you've you've got a company like this restaurateur. You need two to four hundred dollars to stay in business. That aspect of thinking small is forget about being the next Bobby Flay or the next national chain. Understand what your task is at the moment. If at the moment you're surviving, that restaurateur needs to to focus on the smallest 
aspect of his business that is going to be the most profitable. If it's, let's say it's 200 bucks a, a, a night or $400 a night. You touched on this a moment ago, Jeff. If you know your customers, the job of that restaurateur is to go through the people who have given him their information, whether it's a business card, an email address, and start sending them offers, catered dinners, birthdays. I mean, look, people complain, and I, I don't mean this, I don't mean to make light of this, but people complain in the restaurant industry about not having enough seats. If you give people an opportunity to celebrate their birthday or an anniversary, what do they want? Well, they want privacy. So you can you can flip everything on its head and say, look, we, you know, you've got, we've not only got social distancing, you have a private dinner, raise the price a little bit, give them some customizations. If they have dietary restrictions, let them know that you're taking extra special care because you're not doing 400 plates a night. You can afford to quite literally have one night where all you're doing is people have peanut allergies. And so again, if you start thinking small when you when you're under pressure like that, you can focus on people that number one have a need, right? So if you're a guy. Let's, let's just make this real. If you're a guy, you celebrate anniversaries and Valentine's Day because you have to. You know what I'm saying? It's not like you, you're thinking God, all year like, truth. I can't wait for Valentine's Day. So if you give that guy a way to make Valentine's Day a blockbuster, I mean, look, your servers aren't doing anything. Have them call the guy. Have them go over to his house. Look around. What colors does she like? I mean, you... You can make the experience so over the top that now you're not talking about a $20, $30, $40, $50 plate. You're talking about a $500 evening. You can couple it with a space in the in the uh, restaurant to show a movie. So do a, a, a night where it's dinner and a movie out. So you go, it's very small. You've got maybe one couch or two couches. You know, Even if it's one, you can set up an area where you have a private screening of some kind of movie, serve popcorn. And you, or whatever. You know what I'm saying? You make it something special. That's what I mean in this facet of, of thinking small. But that what it under what it, it underlies, what underlies that is a um, I think a more powerful methodology. When you look at the old masters of direct response marketing, most people don't know that they sent out literally thousands of people door to door, not to sell, but to ask questions. So the Fuller Brush Company, it's old. If you're under 40, you probably don't even know what that is. But it was literally a company that sold makeup brushes, paint brushes, like it sounds. It was a brush company. Well, the copywriter that made that company hugely successful did that by literally sending one person out to one person's house with a sample brush. Here, ma'am, use this brush. They would come back and then ask her, what did you like? What didn't you like? How did you use it? And then they turned around and used that in their marketing. When you understand one person, one person's need, you can scale that up to a larger number. Now, yeah, you may not serve a whole lot of people. So if you're serving women who like a four inch brush that only use a very specific kind of makeup, obviously that market's going to be small. And so there are some, like I said, there are some nuances to it, but the key to scaling isn't that you somehow magically get a million people using your service. Now let's take Amazon. When Amazon started, they sold books. And it was only books. They like to carry all of the books. As they grew and as they got more customers, it wasn't just about giving people more options. We've been around uh, you know, our, our e-commerce life for so long, we, we really forget that 
ordering online wasn't easy back then, Jeff. I mean, I remember getting payment processors and the forms and, you know, forget about it. You didn't have mobile. It you was actually all needing computer. a signature. Exactly right? right, dude. I mean, I had merchant accounts that were shut down because I was charging too much too fast. I've had merchant account companies hold hundreds of thousands of dollars where today it's not really so much of a problem because the banks and the, the merchant system kind of gets the, the fraud and they get it. But back then they didn't know what was going on. They're like, wait a minute, you don't, you're not swiping the card. No. Or will you talking to the person on the phone? No, they're online online. Well, that could be anybody. So Amazon's Amazon was able to scale because they were able to find a solution for one person. Now you can design that solution for that one person so that it might serve 500. It might serve 5,000. It might serve 5 billion. It's not, it's not necessarily up to you as the entrepreneur to decide if it's going to fit that many people. You can guess and you can do market research and you can, you can kind of have a, an inkling about if it's going to fit. But the real secret to Amazon is, is twofold. Number one, it was the trend, right? The e-commerce trend was going to happen irrespective of who was involved. I was marketing on a thing called IRC chat back in 1994. I was selling. Jeez, now you're dating yourself, brother. Uh, hey, man, I, I was selling C here. I'll date myself even more. C-band satellite, which, of course, 90% of the people that are going to hear this like, what the hell is C-band satellite? It was a six foot dish. I had to get a contractor to install this in a cement footing in somebody's backyard. And I was selling that <laughs> online. I had somebody on IRC chess. I, I could see him like waving his fist. You will never commercialize the Internet. And kind of in a, maybe a moment of, of prophecy, I said, buddy, when Coca-Cola, GE, and IBM get online, they're going to run over you like a steamroller. And that's exactly what happened. So the other aspect of thinking small is you can design a solution for a single person. Like, let's go back to the restaurateur. The solutions that I described are not designed to make that guy or that, yeah, I think he's a guy, um, into you know a restaurant magnate, although it might. It's designed to solve a single problem. The trick to creating an Amazon isn't that they Jeff's idea of selling books is what made them into a trillion-dollar company. I mean, there's Amazon Web Services. There's the whole concept of Prime, the one-click ordering. These things came on afterward, but they were all designed to solve a single person's problem. Like we were just saying, how hard is it to order online? Well, it, it's pretty tough. Wow, I wonder, could we just like store their payment information and have one button? Well, let's give it a shot. Now you, you've taken out all that difficulty. You now have also made your offer more appealing to maybe somebody who's older. They're looking at a small screen. They can't type that well. So it's not that they were trying to... to design something that had all of that massive appeal, all that massive appeal came later. It was, how do we make this ordering process simple? One click. So this is really interesting that you say that. Right. So Amazon started with books. They perfected their processes. They perfected their logistics, of course. And how am I going to get a book across country from, uh, you know, from the West Coast to the, east, uh, to the East Coast? And in the process of doing this, they ended up setting up all these other ancillary businesses, right? So yep. now I can build 
like I can I can order stuff from China, ship it directly to Amazon's warehouse, sell it through the Amazon platform. I don't even have to touch the stuff, right? Even their computing platform, when they were developing their own computing platform, they realized like, hey, you know, we're only utilizing 10% of the computing power that we just put on there. Why don't we resell this as a commodity? And now all of a sudden they're selling, uh, you know, they're selling servers and hard drive space. Like, you, you know, like we're buying electricity from the electric company, right? What's really interesting here, I want to circle back to one to one interesting point. You keep on talking about solving the problem for the one person, right? So this is this is coming up with your ideal avatar, you know, like the one person. And, it, you know, you might even want to give this person a name and put his picture on your wall and, you know, write a bio about him. What are some of the steps of coming up with that ideal avatar and, of course, ensuring that this is the right avatar who's actually going to buy your product? So this is, it's a chicken and the egg problem. And the way I describe it when I'm working with teams is, you know, we've got to dance with this or we've got to juggle this. I, I like the idea of a dance more than anything else because a dance is about timing and, you know, getting the right steps, but it's also about being able to back and fill and stop and all of that. So I'm going to have... Uh, an unfortunate answer, Jeff. The way you get this is by talking to people. <laughs> the reason right. why, uh, you know, I'm, oh, geez, I'm imagine that. Like, you're, I thought yeah, you were going to give me this, uh, you know, this complex formula. It's like, no, you just got to go talk to them, man. Listen, I so in my, I've had a, I've had a, a, a truly magical career. I, was, I developed some of the early trading systems that were algorithmic, right? So this AI, right, everybody's bragging about, which is, again, an, another hour show. It's all bogus. It's smoke and mirrors, right? Basically, what you're doing is having a computer make decisions for you. So what really, when people say AI now, think a recipe multiplied by a million. It's just a bunch of steps and if then. Okay, so most people, especially if you're involved in e-commerce, you you want to sit in your office and, and make a ton of money. Good luck with that. The best way is to talk to somebody about what they want. Just like these women that were in my townhouse community, it's like, hey, what is that? Oh, it's a bird feeder. Well, why do you have that? Oh, I like the birds and you know they're pretty. And what, what I, I kind of got as well is that these people were lonely, right? So the real problem, and this strikes to the heart of the old-time copywriters. I tell a story about a, a, a very unknown but very profitable copywriter. His name is Claude Hopkins. Claude Hopkins wrote a, a sales letter for what they called baby bumpers. It's a stroller, what we call a stroller today. What he figured out is that women bought the stroller not for the comfort of their child or all the stuff that they would tell you, but because of what other women thought about them as a mom based on their choice, right? So what does the stroller say about her as a mom? Well, when you understand that's really the buying decision, and I know that rubs people the wrong way and they like to, you know, we have this idealistic way of thinking about people. I would, I would encourage you as, a, as an entrepreneur to disabuse yourself of of those kinds of things and really develop more realistic way of looking at people, but not judgmentally. Like if that's how she wants to buy her, her stroller, great. Once he understood that, he was able to sell millions of these things during the depression. There's an old time ad that a lot of people copy. Everybody laughed when I sat down at the piano until I started to play. There's another one. Do you make these mistakes in English? All of those strike to the heart of the real issue 
So the real issue back when the piano ad was around was people got people socialized quite a bit. And if you could play an instrument and you could play it well, even if it was just one or two songs, people looked at you more highly. So if you wanted to raise yourself in the social standing, you needed to play an instrument. You needed to sing. You needed to recite poetry, something like that. Because we had a, a huge influx of uh, immigrants. They didn't speak English very well. So do you make these mistakes in English? It's not just that they wanted to speak English. They didn't want to feel stupid. They didn't want to feel left out. They didn't want to feel embarrassed. And so the ad copy has all of that sprinkled in. The way you understand that is by talking to people. Years ago, I was having an argument with all these. I mean, I know like the Ryan Dices and the Frank Kearns. I mean, kind of the internet marketing crowd. I mean, I, I know all these guys. We kind of grew up together in the industry. So we had this big argument about sales funnels and what would convert. And we were all writing long, long form sales copy back then. It was before VSLs and video sales letters really became prop, uh, profitable and popular. I sat a person down at a computer and watched over their shoulder going through the landing page, the website, and everything. That experience was invaluable because I saw how the person, not on a heat map or on you know, hot jar or something, but seeing them do it and more importantly, hearing what she was saying. So she hit the opt-in page, scrolled up and down. I mean, you could hear, I don't know, maybe you can pick it up on the mic, but you could hear the mouse wheels. Zit, 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 zit. She goes down to the bottom, up to the top, and then finally settles where the, the opt-in box is in the middle of the page. Why do you people always want my email address? I thought, that is not what I want somebody thinking before they give me money. I mean, think about it as a salesperson. Do you want somebody frustrated? No. I said, okay, just you know, enter in, an, here, enter in my email address because I just want her to go to the next step. So she goes to the next step. Here's the sales page. She, Jeff, she didn't spend two seconds reading. She hit the page, because it was a long one. I mean, she was like, the mouse wheel was smoking. She finally gets to the bottom, goes to the top, and settles on a part of the sales page with a buy button right in the middle of the screen, by coincidence, and says, there's nothing to buy here. When I asked her about that whole experience, the reason why is because she mostly shopped on back then like a Drupal kind of e-commerce page, really what, what Amazon, what an Amazon search listing looks like. So when you search in Amazon, you usually get like an array, maybe two, two products or three products in a row, and you know, you just kind of scroll through them all. Every site that she bought on looked like that. But when I understood that, it, it was purely a perception issue. When she, when she hit the, the sales page with the headline, you know, how they all looked, her brain immediately told her, there's nothing to buy here. And so this, this does get a little bit nuanced. But again, in, unless I would have seen her do that, I would have tried, you know, some marketing guru, you know, Seth Godin might have something or, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk. You would have changed the color or used yeah. oh, you or you used a stock color. photo with a guy with a different shirt. <laughs> right. You know, all that stuff. All I've gotten in, I've been in so many of these high level groups where people will say stuff like that. Well, why don't you try this? And I, here's what I ask them. I said, are you asking me that because you've read a book and been to a seminar where somebody told you that's what you should do? Or are you doing that based on experimental data? I usually get met with silence because now there's cognitive dissonance because they realize 
holy crap, everything I'm telling people to do, I'm doing because I, I read it in a book somewhere. What I endeavored to do a long time ago was to base decisions on data. I have spent millions of my own dollars so when I to test things. So when I got into consulting, what I promised all of my clients was I am never going to suggest something to you that I haven't spent my money on. And the further thing that I told them was, and if I do get into a situation where I'm telling you to test something, if it doesn't work, I'll pay for it. Nobody that's does a hell that. Of a promise. Well, because yeah, that's a and promise. it's risk reversal, right? It's all about what. So what's the risk? If, if you're a consultant, what's the risk to the client? The risk to the client is you're going to suggest a bunch of crap that you're just dreaming up. Hey, this this seems like a good idea. Or like if you're a McKinsey or a bunch of the Harvard knuckleheads running around, it's like a bunch of PhDs got together who have no real experience and dream up, oh, you know what? It would be really great if we could do this. And they have all these complex models that justify it. But my first question is, based on what? Like, Why are you suggesting that? What data do you have? So the reason why I did that as a consultant, obviously, was differentiation and some other things. But it was also, again, because I wanted the person who needs to make the decision about their business to be able to say yes. I wanted to lower the risk to them because when you're in trouble and most of the clients that I've worked with over the years have been in serious trouble, partner infighting, losing money. They're completely in the red. They're literally pulling money out of like kids college funds and and other craziness to keep the business going, which is not too dissimilar from today. I use the same methodology with them that I tell people to use today. You've got to focus on the smallest thing. If if your top line is 10 or $20 million, your goal is not to get to 15 or 25. Your goal is to keep the doors open. And so what, first of all, what's that number? Like how much money do you need coming in the door just to pay the bills, pay everybody's salary and give you enough money at the end of the month so you can buy food, pay your rent. You know, maybe you should sell the BMW and get a Toyota, uh, but, you know, pay your bills. Let's start there and let's get creative. So when I'm in that situation, I cannot deliver theory. I cannot deliver conjecture. I need to be able to deliver something to a person where it's got the what I call the highest odds of success. I like there's a guarantee, but just that all of the major things that can go wrong, like you mentioned uh, testing colors. Look, changing a color from green to red ain't going to double your sales. I mean, I got bad news for, for the you know, guys that are saying to, to do It's just not. It's not a big enough change to do that. What is going to make that kind of difference is a very simple formula. It's the offer. So what are you selling? It's going to be the price. How much is it relative to what you're selling? And it's the guarantee. It's just those three things. If you, if you focus on those three things alone, you will find the biggest bang for the buck in terms of top line revenue and then profitability. Yes, you can use other techniques. I'm talking about when you got a gun to your head, you need to focus on those three things because those, what I can guarantee somebody is the returns on on one of those three will far will be far outsized relative to other changes. You know what's interesting that I see a lot of my clients that when I ask them to define their offer, like what are you offering, right? <laughs> they you know they have uh, a hard time defining it, right? right. And when you ask them, you like uh, you know have you defined who your who your ideal cu- your ideal customer your ideal avatar? You know also it's like. Well, you, uh, you know, the, if you can't put a name to it and you can't put, you know, certain actions or what kind of demographics we're talking about here, you're going to have a much tougher time. 
right? Unless yep. it, it, so, you know, they, uh, they tell you the riches are in the niches, you know, when you niche down and then niche down again, if you're like a PR company specific for, you know, some type of investor relations, you know, within a certain subset of the financial world, then great. Then you know exactly who your client is. There's probably a thousand, you know, clients like that in the United States. Great. Go focus on them. Right. Because you'll be able to deliver a much clearer, you know, much clearer value to them once you focus down, because you can't just say, you know, well, I sell everything to everybody, you know, not even Amazon says that. Right. Absolutely. I, I love to make things as concrete as possible. Riches and niches it sounds great from the stage, but let's talk from an entrepreneur standpoint. You've got to understand that it, that is not a, it's not a long term strategy. So keep that in mind. Uh, you may need to shift niches over time. But one way to, to figure out whether or not it's a long term strategy has to do with who that who is in the niche. So if you're, I'm, I'm, I'll look in your background for a second. So if you're if you're selling to people that have, you know, that buy, I love it, Yoda, that, you know, have that buy stuffed animals like that, Yoda, uh, maybe even BB, Beanie Babies, for crying out loud, my parents got in the whole Beanie Baby craze. Yeah, you're going to have, obviously, people that are passionate, right? So you are a Star Wars fan, obviously, and I would even say probably uh, Clone Wars based on the the doll back there. And that's actually um, the doll, the stuffed animal. Of course, in the moment, now I'm forgetting it, the Mandalorian. So yes, you can sell to those people, but again, you've got to put your realistic entrepreneur hat on and, and understand that. It, so if that person is making forty thousand to fifty thousand dollars a year, that's quite different from the professional like you, Jeff. That's maybe got a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. So when you're in that niche, what, what's meant by a niche within a niche within a niche is what I just described, which again, goes back to the avatar and talking to the people, going to a, a like a Star Wars convention or, you know, Comic-Con isn't enough. You've got to go to dinner with people, ask them who you are. I'll give you an example. I was working with a company. They, they were selling a diabetes product. I told the CEO, we have to go to this diabetes convention. His first question, why do we need to do that? And I'll call him Dave. Uh, so I said, Dave, you need to understand who you're selling to. I said, have you ever like talked to somebody with diabetes? And I don't mean, you know, somebody who just got diagnosed. I'm talking about somebody who's had diabetes for 30 years. They've got like ulcers on their feet. They're limping around, you know, somebody like that. Well, no. Oh my goodness. So we go, we wind up at lunch, sitting down with a, a group of people and one method that I that I learned early on in my career to test sales copy was to just either read it to somebody or know it well enough that you can say it to somebody. So I just started reciting sales copy to people. And I got to this one particular aspect of the product. And literally, Jeff, every person at the table said, I want that. I want that. I want that. I want that. And I turned to Dave and I said, that's why you talk to people. So when we launched the next product, we were getting leads in a diabetes market for 10 cents. I was making a $30 sale for four bucks. So when you talk That's about- an amazing markup. Well, but it's, it's not magic. It's because we spent two months doing research. We physically went to a diabetes conference and then I tested the sales pitch on live human beings that were in the market. 
It's really just that simple. And so that's thinking small. That's going, so that was, and it's not a focus group. Look, focus groups are a waste of time. You need to sell, you need to give somebody an offer. Now, obviously I don't want to get bogged down in what that offer was. There was no magic in it. So that's why I didn't go into a lot of detail, but that setup, if you can find something like that, which I know is tough today with lockdowns and whatnot, you've got to do that. And you, and it's not, a, don't make it a hypothetical, meaning, Hey, would you buy this? Sell it to the person offer. That's what's meant by an offer. If, if I was going, I've got a coffee cup here. Now, if I were going to sell you this coffee cup, I'd be making an offer to you. Be like, you know, Jeff, you seem kind of like a nerdy guy and you like, you like being nerdy. And you know what? This cup says talk nerdy to me. I think if you had this on your desk, it, it would make you feel good, man. I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're going to think about all the things that you enjoy in life. Would you buy it for five bucks? I'd well, buy it for 10. Well, okay. So I just made a, that's how, that's how you do it. Now, obviously, you know, it was kind of tongue in cheek. I'll take you up on that. You can PayPal me at uh, Maceo Jordan at the insidercode.com. I'll even wash the cup before I send it to you. That's an example of how you do it. And that was totally off the cuff. So obviously it wasn't well thought out copy, but it can be that easy. So if you find yourself in a situation after listening to this and you want, well, how do I test that out? Turn to the person next to you, strike up a conversation, ask them if they're in, like you sell light bulbs. I just looked around my office, you know, ask somebody, Hey, have you ever thought about led light bulbs? I've, you know, I've seen a couple and I'm, you know, I'm always Wondering if, if other people like them. Oh, yeah. You know what? I've always wanted LED light bulbs, but I'm, they just don't seem like they're that bright. And when, I, when people had them, because they, they had an early product, yeah, you know, it just seemed like it was dim since you, Mr. Lightbulb, said, you know what? I just happened to, you know, I, I might be able to have a, a, I might be able to get you an LED bulb that is not only really bright, but it's, it's natural light. So if you ever, you know, had trouble falling asleep at night, it, it might actually be because of your light bulbs. You know what? If I sent you a light bulb, would you would you test it out for me? You could be sitting next to somebody. You could hear you could overhear somebody talking about how they're having trouble sleeping at night and enter into that conversation. So don't it's it's not something that has to be this big long drawn out process, but again, you've got to have the guts to step out and actually talk to somebody and offer them your talk dirty to me coffee cup. <laughs> I love it. I love it, man. Thank you so much for sharing that. Maceo, do me a favor. Can you let everyone know how they can uh, uh, how they can learn more, more about what it is that you do and how they can reach out to you directly if they'd like to learn more? Yeah. You know, the best way to learn about what I do is uh, what I call experientially. So MaceoJordan.com, that is the best way to get a hold of me. I've got a contact form on there, of course. I do have a, a YouTube channel as well. That's Maceo Jordan. You can just Google, or Google me, you search for me on YouTube. Twitter also, Maceo Jordan, LinkedIn, Maceo Jordan. I'm, I'm Maceo Jordan everywhere. It's the beauty of having a unique name. But really, the best way is through interaction. I, I don't like doing things uh, hypothetically. So if you want me to help you work through something, you know, either email me what you want me to work on. We can get together on a screen share. Let's just go over it. Sounds like a plan. Maceo, thank you so much for joining me. This has been really fun. Very entertaining. And also, I, I, you know, I learned a lot about this. You know, it's that, you know, I love talking about making offers and getting people to think differently on how they can actually engage their, their ideal audiences. Thank you so much for joining okay. me. You're welcome. Jeff, thank you for having me. 